You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. From darkness to light, this is the story we all share as the people of God. He draws us out to draw us in. From the birth of Israel to the church today, God delivers and dwells with his people. How many of you here this morning, right now, are in a contract for something? I don't think some of you are thinking through this. You are. Uh, If you have cable TV or you have a cell phone or anything like that, you you are probably under contract. Um, My favorite thing is when it finally comes time to renew contracts. Um, and I'm going to give you all 30 seconds of an education, and I'll deny I ever told you this. Um, I don't pay hardly anything for direct TV. And it's because I learned about a thing called the retention department. You all of a sudden have negotiating power when that contract runs out. You want to keep me as a customer, you're almost going to have to show up at my house and feed me grapes. But contracts are a pain. Um, You may be under one for like Amazon Prime or Wow Internet, which let's be honest, no one has ever said wow while using. Um, another Another conversation for another day. But when the contract expires or supposedly if one of the parties violates it, that contract is null and void. Um, I think that we've all had more than enough of these. But what about a covenant? And I'm not talking about the kind that if you live in a neighborhood with stuffy rules. No, no. I don't even know how they justify calling those covenants. But what about a covenant? What's the difference in a contract and a covenant? Because there are some similarities, but they're not the same thing. A contract is legally binding, but a covenant is actually a spiritual agreement. A contract is agreement between parties, but a covenant is a pledge. Um, I had the opportunity yesterday to perform the wedding ceremony for a young couple. They made a covenant and a pledge, not only to one another, but between themselves and the Lord, that this marriage is now binding. You can opt out of a contract, while a covenant is about having the strength to actually hold up your part of the promise. The difference between covenant and contract is never more evident than when someone breaks either one of those agreements. Um, a contract is invalid when one of the parties violates it. On the other hand, a covenant remains intact even if one of the parties breach it. Now, understanding all of that, let's walk through remembering some things. In Genesis 14 and 15, God comes to a man named Abraham who has great faith in him, and God makes a covenant with Abraham. But by this time, um, people made covenants all the time, and when you did it, you sacrificed animals, and you laid them out, and before you burned them, both parties walked through the sacrifices. It's quite lovely, I'm sure. Well, in this instance, 
God puts Abraham in a deep sleep and God passes through on his own to simply say this covenant is solely and completely dependent upon me. Then God keeps this covenant through Abraham's son Isaac, through his son Jacob, through his sons. Uh, We know one more than others, Joseph. Then you move into Exodus chapter 6 as God is about to free his people from slavery. Who is it, if you'll remember, that says, I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, Um, you will be my people. God says this. Then you fast forward to Exodus 24. The people have been given the Ten Commandments. Moses and the elders go up on the mountain. They get a glimpse of like... The, the reflection of the bottom of the shadow of God. They fall on their faces. They worship. God continues to renew this covenant. Who, who says, Lord, all of the things that you have spoken, we will do. The people do. Then you move like a few days into the future. And who is it that just days later takes that covenant and rebelliously, sinfully violates it and breaks it. The people. So let's make sure that we're all on the same page here. Who has every right at this point to say this agreement is null and void and it no longer means anything? God does. But make note of this. Because you and I, this still matters. God doesn't make contracts. God made a covenant. And God says, I'm going to keep it. So even though the Israelites have responded and rebelled this way, what did the Lord say would happen instead? This is what we looked at last week. God came and he said, okay, Moses, I'm still making good on my promise. You're about to take everybody and you're going to move into the land that I've promised you. But here's the catch. I'm not going with you. I'm not going. And Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. And the Lord agrees. And, and in Exodus 33:17, the Lord says, Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. I will go with you. You will be my people. Now, as the Lord has allowed his glory to pass by and Moses catch a glimpse of it, he is about to give Moses instructions for what to do next. This is where we are this morning in Exodus 34. So if you've got your Bible, please turn with me there. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible and would like to use one, we have them on the tables around the room. Or if you've got the app um, and you go to events, you'll find our scriptures for today. Well, look with me here in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. And God said, And no one is to come with you, and they're not even to get near the mountain. If you remember back the first time that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, God provided 
the stones, the tablets. God did the writing. God did everything. This time, God says, all right, Moses, we're going to do this again, but you're bringing your own tablets. Why would God do this? We really don't know, um, but I think that it's maybe safe to speculate that from this moment on, any and every time that the people saw the commandments, that this would be a reminder that the first ones I gave you were broken in righteous anger over your sin. Moses, you, you bring the tablets this time. Verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If you remember back in Exodus 33, as God says, Moses, I will do just as you have asked. Moses' next statement, next request is, Lord, Show me your glory. Moses asked to see God. And God says, well, Moses, that can't really fully happen and you live. So we're not going to go that route. However, God honors Moses' request. And Moses had the opportunity to catch a glimpse of the glory of God. Basically to see the backside of God's presence. Let me ask you, have you ever seen something or met someone that you just absolutely could not wait to tell other people about? I would tell you today that if I ever met Peyton Manning, if I ever met that dude, um, I would get my picture with him and you would all see it within seconds or minutes. All right. And it would never be deleted from my phone. I love Peyton. I don't know if you've ever seen the Grand Canyon. I don't know how you can witness the Grand Canyon with your eyes and not be, first of all, in awe of the creation, but more so in awe of the creator. If you see that, it is absolutely breathtaking. It's mind-blowing. Conversation for another day about how I think it only took days for that place to be created as the earth erupted and God flooded this place. How about a shooting star? Where we used to go to youth camp in the Ozark Mountains in northern Arkansas, we could go every night and just lay out on the hill and you'd see one, two, three. What's funny about a shooting star is like, if you see one, you never have time to say, oh, hey, there it is, because poof, it's gone. But when you see that happen, it's just like, wow, it's incredible. You want somebody else to witness it. Or maybe you've seen the dude riding around town with his dog on the motorcycle with the goggles on. Now, that's not that dog. But if you've ever seen that Cocker Spaniel, 
equally as incredible as all these other things I've mentioned. Again, I don't know who you've met or what you've seen that you maybe wanted to tell somebody else about, but could we all maybe agree that Moses has way got all of us beat? I mean, if anybody ever had a, well, I walked on the moon moment, it would be Moses. So what in the Sam Hill, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but Moses right here, Exodus 34, has the opportunity to tell us what the backside of the presence of God looks like. And he doesn't do it. Rather than tell us what he saw, he tells us what he hears. Why does he do this? Was he dumbfounded? Um, Was he blinded like Paul on the road to Damascus? We don't have any evidence of that. Is he being like arrogantly selfish? Not sure. But here's the thought. What if us knowing how God appears is much less significantly important for us than knowing what God says? What if? I mean, what if, yes, would it be incredible? Absolutely. But maybe at this juncture in our lives, as that juncture in the life of the Israelites, maybe we don't need to know what God looks like, but maybe we need to know exactly what it is that he says. One day we will see God and all things will be made new. But until then, we have the opportunity to hear from him. Instead of telling us what he looks like, he tells us who he is. God here to Moses and through Moses to us reveals his goodness and the meaning of his name. Go back to verse six with me for a moment. The Lord, he says, this is who I am, Moses. I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. However, I will not just blindly let sin and guilt pass by. In fact, the consequences of it will ripple out from generation to generation. What God does here with Moses is he shares his divine attributes. And what he says to Moses is so significantly important that it's repeated by David. And these scripture references are there. I would encourage you maybe today, tomorrow to go and look at them. Psalm 86, Psalm 103, David takes what God has said about himself and repeats it back to him. In Daniel chapter 9, in Joel chapter 2, in Jonah chapter 4, you begin to understand what God says here is vital because all the prophets and kings repeat it back to God. So walking through this passage, let's take a moment and rip apart here. What does the Lord tell us about himself? First of all, God says, I am merciful. I am sympathetic with your weaknesses. To be merciful means to be full of compassion. 
you don't forgive as many times as God and not be merciful. God is sympathetic with our weaknesses. God is gracious. God is full of grace. God has a desire to show mercy. If mercy is not giving someone what they deserve, whether it be punishment or consequences, I will have mercy on you. You will not get what you deserve. Grace is almost the flip side of that. It is giving to us what we need, but we don't deserve. Unmerited favor. We've done nothing to earn or deserve it, but God gives it anyways. God is slow to anger. We should just probably sit on that one for a minute. God is not harsh. God is not volatile. God does not act rashly. God does not lose his temper. And you might go back even in Exodus and go, well, now it looks like God's gotten angry here before. Hey, folks, there's a difference between anger and losing my temper. When we see God's righteous anger displayed, we can know that it has been well thought through. And that we have not seen, other than Jesus on the cross, we have not seen the potential outcome of that anger. It has been restrained. God is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is loyal. God keeps his promise. He follows through. I look at it this way. God loves without measure. God loves with determination. And then, of course, he says he is forgiving. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Forgiving means to lift or to carry. And so, I want you to think about it this way. If in forgiveness, God is lifting away the burden, God is not in forgiveness toward us, just letting us bring it before him and him kind of saying, okay, I'll just let that pass on by and forget that it went past. No, no. God is actually the one lifting off the burden and taking it as far as the east is from the west and removing it from us. He is actively, not passively, forgiving us. Look back with me in Exodus chapter 2 for a moment. Keeping all this in mind, Exodus, um, these attributes of God, what he has proclaimed about himself And I want you to look at Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Let's go back to the beginning here. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, 
And God remembered, not as if God had forgotten, but God still had in front of him. He had not forgotten the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now read this. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew what? Name it. God knew. No matter what, our sin, our suffering, our pain, um, our bitterness, our joy, no matter what it is, God knows. No matter what and how much of what you and I have brought into this room this morning within us, God knows. The struggle that you and I may walk out this door and face today, God already knows. So going back here into Exodus 34, God says, Moses, this is who I am. And as Lee read earlier in worship, verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if, I, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Yes, Lord, you are right. We are a stiff-necked people. And so, Lord, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. God reveals himself, Moses worships. And, and I want you to see here that for Moses, worship is not just coming into a room with a bunch of friends and church family and singing and that kind of thing. No, and, and not that there's anything wrong with that. That is part of our corporate worship. But where does Moses' worship before a holy God lead him? It leads him to a place of confession and repentance. Moses is on his face saying, God, you have pointed out our sin and I am in total agreement with you. That is who we are and what we have done. But Lord, now fulfill that promise and take us to be your people. Moses worships. And now God responds. Verse 10. The Lord said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation and all the people among you among whom you are will see the work of the Lord for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Let me ask you a question. Had God not already done at least maybe a couple awesome things? Let's see. Threw down some plagues on Egypt parted the sea so that a million something people walked through it, then drowned the Egyptian army. Moses tapped a rock and a million people had enough to drink. God brings manna, bread from wherever it came from, quail falling from the sky. I think God up to this point has already done some amazing and marvelous things that anybody would stand in awe witnessing. God's done this. But you know what God says here? I'm just getting started. I'm not done. 
And this has always been God's plan to spread his glory throughout the earth through his people. And so he says to Moses here, that's why I brought you out in the first place. And that's why I'm taking you in now. That's my plan. So a thought for you and I sitting here on our side of history, God said, it is an awesome thing that I will do. Let me ask you this morning, what wonder or marvel has ever been greater than the ultimate redemption and forgiveness of the sin of the world? None. You know why Jesus healed the beggar they lowered through the ceiling? He said, well, okay, because you don't believe I can forgive sin, get up and walk, buddy. Do you know why you and I can drive to Southwest America and even witness the Grand Canyon? Because God said, I'm going to put a little something down there just so they'll have a little bitty glimpse of the backside of the shadow of my glory. I can do that. Like, I can spit and make that happen. When you come to grips with who you are and what you've done, what could possibly be more marvelous than knowing that the Lord, the sovereign creator, almighty God of the universe, keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who trust him? God ultimately would accomplish this promise to Moses, his purpose. He would accomplish this through his son. Turn with me to John chapter 14 for just a second. In John chapter 14, this is the night before Jesus is is going to die. Um, He has washed his disciples' feet. He's about to begin praying for them in the midst of all of this. Verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to Thomas, verse 6, Thomas, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and this will be enough for us. And Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you this long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. Jesus says, Philip, after all this time, after all that you've seen, you still don't know who I am? Let's take a quick glance at some of what, and I mean a glimpse here, at some of what Philip saw and heard the three years leading up to this. Look in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. This is what Philip witnessed day in and day out. Jesus was going through the villages and teaching, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without 
the shepherd. Jesus' compassion was visible. Chapter 14, verse 14. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Chapter 20, verse 34 It says, Jesus in pity, Jesus filled with compassion, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. Jesus is full of this compassion toward us. Back into John, the gospel of John chapter one. John is saying that Jesus is God, that he is the word, that he is the light of life. He goes on in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus has mercy and grace toward us. Look in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, We do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. When we looked at what God said about himself, and he says, first thing, out of the chute, I am a God of mercy. We understand that mercy is to sympathize with our weaknesses. And we understand that we have a Savior who in every regard sympathizes with our weaknesses. First John chapter four, verse 10. This is love. Not that you and I love. We don't have the first clue about how to do that. Except that we have seen it in that God has loved us and that he sent his son to be the atonement, the propitiation for our sins. This is love that God has loved us first. Friends, Philip saw this and he heard this. So did Peter and Andrew and James and John and Mary Magdalene and on down the list. Well, guess what? So did Moses. So did Moses. Remember, go back to Exodus. Moses, at this point, has caught a glimpse of the backside of the shadow of the presence of God. And he's lived to tell about it. But now look at Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter and James and John and says, come up the mountain with me. I got something to show you. After six, six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them. Jesus slightly pulled back the veil that they might see just a glimpse of the glory of God. And you know, Peter, James, and John, they're blinded and dumbfounded. They don't know what's going on. Jesus is transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And now look at this. And behold... There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. 
I, I don't know how heaven works. Um, I, I don't know, like, if Moses has been hanging out with Jesus, like, in heaven. I, I don't know what's been going on, but for a couple thousand years at that point, um, Moses on this earth had just seen a morsel of a thread of the glory of God. And now he's standing on the mountain conversing with God in the flesh. Who of any of these people deserved to be in the presence of God, to be in the presence of the one true holy and righteous God? No one. Who of any of us deserve to taste and see the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the unfailing love of the Lord? None of us. And yet, we're going to land the plane right here. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. Yet understanding all of that. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Exodus 34, God comes and God renews his covenant with Israel. God renewed his covenant with Israel. But understand, church family, God fulfilled his covenant with us in Christ. You read Exodus 34 and God proclaims, this is who I am. And you look at Jesus and you see, same, full of mercy and grace and compassion, sympathizes with our weakness. God comes and he renews this covenant with Israel. And thank you, Lord, that you are not about contracts, but you are about covenants and you keep those covenants. He fulfilled his covenant with us in Christ because he desires to have a relationship with us. He sent his son to atone for our sin, to pardon us, to cleanse us, to make us whole. He sent his spirit to guide us into truth and purity and holiness and righteousness. God says, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are will see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And then he says, observe what I command you this day. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we thank you that you are merciful and gracious. That you are slow to anger. That you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord God, that you 
forgive our iniquities, our transgressions, and sin. Because of your grace and your mercy. And you have done this not through anything that we have done or that we could ever do. You have done this in and through your Son. So Lord Jesus, this morning we thank you that we have a Savior who understands what we walk through. Who understands the the raw emotions that we feel. But we also have a Savior who in every way was without sin and who laid down His own life for us. So Lord, we say thank you this morning. In just a moment, we're going to respond to the Lord in song. I want to encourage you, if you need to come to the steps or the foot of the cross and make that an altar, spend a few moments in prayer, please come. If you're here this morning and you you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never put your faith and trust in him. When we finish up here in just a few minutes, some of our pastors and elders will be down here at the front. Uh, they would love to talk with you, share with you the good news of the hope that we have in Christ. Lord Jesus, in this moment, in this place, we exalt you and lift you up. Be glorified in and through our songs, but more importantly, our lives. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.